0: Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckel.
1: I'm James Ward.
0: This week we are interviewing our friend Joey Gibson about small talk because we got some feedback from him. I think he was indicating that there was maybe some yelling at the podcast <laughs> while he was listening to it because yeah, shaking fists. We were we were getting some things wrong, and he wanted, and so we we decided. Well, if we're if if we don't understand it, why not go to a source and correct our That's right. correct our perceptions? Well, and,
1: and one kind of meta thing about our podcast is that. It works out. It's working out great so far. For when people have feedback that they want to convey, great, come on, yeah. come, on come on to the show, and we'll we'll discuss that feedback right. on an episode. It's been been awesome. So thanks, Joey, for joining us yeah. and um, giving us your feedback and teaching us more about small talk.
0: Right. So can you give us some. Um... Background of like because you, you were involved in one of the small talk projects, and I mean just to g- give some context, I have had encounters with small talk. The first time that I've ever. Encounters. What's that? Close encounters. Uh, no, kind just of encounters. distant. I remember the first <laughs> time I ever heard of it was the Byte magazine. They had this. This was back <sighs> when they had these really giant thick issues and they had one which was all about small talk and it had this hot air balloon on the front of it and uh, and it was just you know small talk everywhere and i don't think i had enough understanding to be able to even grasp the language but one of the problems was that it was so expensive to <laughs> yeah. set up but anyway so so tell us yeah just give us how did you get involved? Was your background was it your first language, et cetera, et cetera, things like that?
2: Well, no, my my first language was BASIC in 1983. Um, I was 13. I saved up my money and bought a Commodore VIC 20 and learned BASIC on it. Um, so then, 10 years later, I guess actually, yeah, like 1993 or 94, um, I was in Salt Lake City, uh, providing some support for one of the teams in the company I worked for, um, the, the company I was at was at this old company. Most of the products were in Fortran and COBOL. And, uh, the first project I did there was actually porting, uh, some COBOL code from 1966 to, uh, to the PC. Um, so then all of a sudden I hear that in there's this group in the company that's doing this thing called small talk. And so I started looking into it and, um, I ended up out in salt lake city with them and while i was there i had a lot of free time so i said you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna see what this is about so i you know went on went on the internet which you know wasn't really what it is today but um so i found it was a free small talk um and so i downloaded that and i started playing with it and i was talking to some of the guys in the group that you know i was doing this and they were like well you know if you're going to learn it you should use a real one, you know, uh, the the full environment, because this was just command line. It didn't have all the GUI stuff.
0: Was that Squeak?
2: No, Squeak didn't come about until '96. Okay. My memory is that it was GNU Smalltalk, but I looked up GNU the other day, and it had it didn't go. The history doesn't go back that far, so it was something prior to that. But he said, if you're if you're going to learn it, you should you know do it correctly. So he says we have an extra license for visual works. Well, visual works was the big one at the time. And it was $5,000, a developer seat, and they had a spare. So, <laughs> we, <laughs> nice. yeah. So, so when we got back to Atlanta, he gave me this box. It was, you know, like a cubic foot of documentation, um, and a whole bunch of like five ghosts. and a quarter,
1: five and a quarter floppies or what? no, these were three and a half. It this may have had, both, three and a half it, it may have
2: had both. Um, I can't remember it's been, that was you know again 26 yeah. years ago something like that. So um I installed it I started playing with it and uh and that's that's what got me started. It was I never
1: What was your machine?
2: It was a uh, 386 33 megahertz I think. Nice. Um you know which was which was pretty swanky at the time but uh, yeah. it may have been a 486 by then I can't remember. It was, um, uh,
1: it was some IBM-compatible IBM, uh, IBM compatible PC thing, not not yeah. not like not on the Commodore. I don't even know if you could be no. on Smalltalk on the no. Commodore. It's just to beyond my, the Commodore days.
2: Yeah, to my knowledge, there was never a, a Commodore 64 or anything uh, Smalltalk. Because
0: that was one of the issues with it, right, is that it required a lot of resources. It's an interpreted environment. Is no, that correct? Right?
2: No, it's, it's, it's compiled to bytecode, and there's a VM that – that, uh, does the bytecode, so it's it's just like, well, I say it's just like Java. I mean, it's a, it's a jitted, um, you know, VM-based thing. Uh, but it, it does require a lot of resources because, you know, like with, with most languages, you're working with text files and you've got an editor and, you know, maybe you've got an IDE that's got some nice features, but it's still not huge, right? Small talk, on the other hand, you're working with an image that is, run by your VM, by the the VM. And the image is actually basically a freeze dried version of an object graph. And inside this object graph is all of your code, all of the system code, all of the windows and the browsers and all the editing tools and the debugger. It's, It's a full system it you know you do everything in the environment and your code lives in the exact same space with the code that makes the windows pop up and um it's a completely different environment but yeah yeah, it did have a lot of resource requirements
0: so how would you distribute an application
2: (laughs) so the way you each vendor had different ways to do it but the the basic way is you would work in your image and, um, when you were ready to distribute it, uh, you would do something called stripping the image. Um, and that's, you would basically set up a, uh, um, I don't remember the exact term, but it was like a, a script for lack of a better word inside the image that would tell it which of your classes it should instantiate and run as the, the entry point. And then when you would run this stripping process, the, could uh, build the, the
1: whole DAG of right it, execution. Yeah.
2: It would go through and strip out everything that wasn't referenced in your code. Um, so the you know the the browsers, the editors, the workspaces, all that stuff would get stripped out, and you would end up with a smaller uh, image file that you could then um, you could run. Most of like I know with Visual Works, um, you would have to like if I were to give it to you, I would give you an executable that was the the runtime and then my image and you would say like you know vw space my image um with uh the smalltalk that i have the most experience with was a windows based one called dolphin smalltalk and it actually generated a .exe file that was everything you needed
0: so did that mean that i would have to have a smalltalk um, installation on my machine in order to run your executable. No.
2: no, I would give you the. I would give you the. The it's
1: like one executable execut- that has the whole IDE and compiler and your program all all in it, huh?
2: Right, and I could give you that full image, but if I were distributing an app, you know, a program for somebody to use, the stripping process would get rid of the IDE parts. Yeah, and so all you that would either be left- give
1: the the dev the dev uh executable or the release executable right
2: yeah
0: so the say the five thousand dollars that you would pay per seat did that include like if i want to distribute this thing do i have to have special licensing or something
2: yeah um i think Uh, different like because you know the big ones back then there was um visual works um that actually came out of a park, which is where small talk, you know, originated, um, IBM, Palo uh, Alto Research Center. Right. Yeah. Um, IBM had visual age for small talk, um, which if we want to talk about at some point, there's a really interesting history into eclipse, um, from that. Um, and then I think they all had their own uh, licensing for distribution. So like just because you bought a developer license doesn't mean you can sell the product. Um, right. I wasn't on that side of it, so I didn't see it. But my my memory is that it was you had to pay distribution licenses too.
0: So how much of an impact do you think that all of that had on the uptake of Smalltalk? It seems like that that was a lot of friction.
2: Yeah. It, I mean, you had to basically work for a company that had deep pockets if you wanted to do it. And, you know, it was, it was really cool. And when people see it, they, you know, are just blown away. Um, I mean, if you, if you think about, uh, Steve jobs talked about visiting park in the late seventies and he said the three things that he saw that he saw these things and he didn't see anything else that they were working on. One was the GUI and it was the small talk GUI. The second one was the mouse and the third one was postscript and he went away from that. And, you know, and, and I can't remember the guy's name, but he hired some guy away from park and to go work on the Lisa, um, which, you know, that's the, that's from where we get the Mac and everything. But, um, but yeah, the, the pricing, yeah, you know, $5,000, a developer seat, which just seems incredible now when, you know, most well, if you adjust length- that
1: for inflation. Like, oh, yeah, that would be like, what, $20,000 now or something. It's
2: yeah, it's something ridiculous. And especially since nobody pays for developer tools anymore. I mean, and I say that, of course, I'm a paid subscriber to JetBrains for their oh, yeah. their full pack, but it's so cheap. Um It doesn't make sense not to do it. But um but yeah, but yeah, it, it charging that much for developer seats. You've got to either have a very small team or have a company that like, you know, doesn't mind spending big money to to get things going.
0: Yeah, everybody else would just say, "Let's spend
1: $69 and get Turbo Pascal."
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so
1: and So you and- you were building UIs. The, that was really the only thing at the time Smalltalk was used for, right? It was UIs or
2: No, you could do um there was an object database. Um I think I think that was Gemstone at the time. Um I could be wrong on that, but um um, the company I worked for, we were we had Oracle um systems and of course it couldn't talk to Oracle at the time, at least I don't think it could. Um, but the sort of canonical way to do databases was gemstone. Um uh the, the when like I worked client, at,
1: client server style apps. So yeah, yeah, are, it's fat fat it's like
2: clients like, and yeah. Uh, yeah, there data, it did it didn't entry. do web and um yeah, but it was it was fat clients is what you were building.
0: Yeah. So tell us what you liked about programming in small talk. What, what made this a great experience for you?
2: Well, having all the, the developer tools, you know, built in, um, you've got this idea and I, I wish, I wish I could show you all this, all these cool things. Um, but you know, this is an audio medium, so I can't really <laughs> do that. But, um, but you have this idea of the, it's called a system browser um so from anywhere you can launch the browser and it shows you all of the classes that are installed in the image so there's thousands and thousands and thousands of classes and then you click on a class and then in the next pane over you see um the protocols and the protocols are just sort of an organizational thing it's it's um they don't really do anything other than convey information to the developers and then you click on a protocol and you can see in the fourth pane, all of the methods that are are in that. Um, So you can, you know, walk. And then once you click on a method in the, the big pane at the bottom, you see the, the method source code source code. Hmm. And so you can get these browsers, um, you know, throughout the system. And in fact, you can do things like if you open a workspace, which is sort of like a, a scratch pad and you can type code into it. And then you run it from within the, the workspace so you can say like you know um my object space browse and then hit the do it key and it will open up a browser on your class Mm -hmm. and then so you can you know like all these objects know how to browse themselves um because everything you know there are hundreds of methods defined on object which is the the basic root of everything and everything everything has to be an has to subclass from something. Um, and you know, if you go from object then obviously you get all of these hundreds of methods and it's things like browsing itself. And, um, you can ask a class for, uh, there's a method called all instances. So if you send a class object, all instances, then it will return you a list of all of the live instances of that class that exist anywhere in the system. Oh wow. Um, Sounds yeah, a which, little
0: overwhelming.
2: It's, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's cool. Um, but yeah, there's, it, it can be. And um, especially if you've never done OO before, which, um, you know, Smalltalk is the granddaddy of of OO languages. So, um, you know. Well,
0: Simula. Well, but the, Smalltalk the, was the first one that just like took it and really ran with it, I would the, say.
2: The more well-known grandfather.
0: Yeah. <laughs> The one that really popularized it, I would say. Yeah,
2: maybe. yes, yeah. I would agree with that.
0: Um, so that's interesting because, well, for for one thing, now when you say protocol, most people would see that as like an interface, right? I mean, or, or more or less of an interface.
2: Well, it's sort of poorly named. Um, it's it's really just a classifier. It doesn't like you can't say um, like in Java, you know, you can you can say that a method takes an interface and anything that implements that interface, you can pass it. It's, it's not that, it's not that type of thing. It's really just um, for when you're in this browser, if you've got, you know, 300 methods defined on your class, um, you can just see all of them listed, you know, in alphabetical order. But if you have classified them as what they're for, then you like, there's a, there are several that are, um, that are just canonical protocols like accessing. So your getters and setters will end up in the accessing protocol. And it's really just a way to filter the list for you as a developer to find what you need.
0: Okay. Um, So most systems, object-oriented systems that have an uh, object-based hierarchy, in other words, when you end up with everything has to come from a root class called typically object that root class usually doesn't have very many operations. And you're saying
1: that the small talk root object has lots. And even things related to the development experience, like being able to browse on any object, that's like tied to the actual IDE, which is also built into the... I'm sure you could browse the objects of the actual IDE too, right? Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, totally. And you can change them. Um, you know, you can add methods to any class that already exists. So like, um, there's, Monkey you know, po- exactly. There's, there's popular, you know, tutorials or a, a a popular thing to have you do in a small talk tutorial is add like a, um, uh, a, 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 a method to string, you know, to do something like the one I saw the other day when I was, sort of revitalizing my memory on small talk was adding a shout method to a string. And so you can say, you know, hello world space shout, and it would uppercase it and add a bang at the end. And that as soon as you add it, any string that exists anywhere in the system has access to that method. You can send any string that method at that moment. Um, you don't have to, it's not just a new string.
0: Ruby has that, yeah. Well, yeah, Ruby was influenced uh, strongly by Smalltalk, and then um, Kotlin has extension functions, which yep. basically do a similar thing, but it's a little less wild westy. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one of the things about monkey patching is that you're sort of. I mean, there's certain risks when you do that, and I think people discovered that more with with Ruby then, I mean, maybe
1: I think it's because with Ruby, you can actually, uh, you could bring in a library that can override your two string method. Yes. Globally. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Or your hash code or whatever. You know? Yes. Like can really do some crazy. crazy
0: yes. Stuff. Well, and it seems like, I mean, could you do that with small talk? well, no, I guess with small talk, everything was there all the time.
1: Well,
2: right? I think you probably could. Um, because, um, there's a lot of stuff going on under the covers where, you know, you send a method, you send a message to an object, and that method is sort of frequently referred to as a message selector, that basically it's going to use the name of that of that method to look up the, the you know, the actual code to run in a, a dictionary, you know, somewhere under the covers. So it's really just a, a, a key into this dictionary, and so you could... You ostensibly could just replace it if you wanted to, though it would probably be a very bad idea. Um, Did it have
0: overloading, to... like function overloading, or was it just like whatever that name was? It was expecting these arguments, and
2: no, you could you could overload functions, um, you could override functions, um, or I say functions—they're all methods. But um, right. it actually w- one of the things that they that it does that no other language that I've seen does. Um, so there's, there's three types of, of messages you can send to an object. There's unary messages, obviously, so like, you know, ABS or um, uh, factorial, you know, which the integer uh, class comes with a factorial method already in case you need it. Um, there's a binary, so, you know, plus, minus, you know, those things, which they are not operations. They're actually methods on numeric classes. And then they have these th- these methods called keyword methods that are um, each part of it is like separated by colons. So like if you had um, like a color object and you wanted to get um, a color from it and you had an RG, like in Java, you would have an RGB method and you would, you know, RGB left paren, and then the red value comma uh, green value comma blue value comma or semicolon. Right. In smalltalk, you would have a method called r colon g colon b colon, and when you send it, you would say color space r colon and then the value for your r, and then a space, and then g colon, the value for your g space b colon the value for your blue, and then a period because that's the statement ender is a period. Um, huh. So like COBOL, yeah, exactly. Um, it does have semicolons, so we can talk about what those are used for later. Um, but yeah, so your, your actual values for the parameters are interspersed with the method name. Um, so rather than having to keep it straight, you know, what these parameters are, it's like right next to the thing that, that names it
1: So like named parameters.
0: Yeah. Like keyword parameters. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You can kind of think of it that way. Um, again, I wish I could like just pull up a whiteboard and show you, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, um. I, I always liked that because it was a unique way to do methods.
1: So it wasn't dependent on ordering then, which is... Oh, it,
2: you know, it is dependent on ordering. Um, okay. So you yeah, because uh, the method name, like in this case for color, for RGB, it was the method, you actually pronounce it as R colon, G colon, B colon. Um, and, and they have to be in that order. Otherwise, it's not the same yeah.
0: method. So um, my understanding of small talk was that it was like purely object-oriented, everything had to be an object. And the way that you created new classes was you always had to inherit them from existing classes.
2: Yes. Um, And in fact, to create a subclass, you send a method, uh, you send a message to the class that you want to inherit from telling it to create a new subclass. Um, And so you... um, It's called subclass colon instance variable names, colon class variable names, colon package, colon. That's the method name. But the beautiful thing, you don't have to remember most of this stuff because if you click on it, you know, you're in the system browser and you click on the class that you want to inherit from. One of the panes at the bottom is going to have a template for that method. So you just, you know, fill in, change the values that you want to change. You put any instance variables or class variables um, that you want. And then when you execute that code, that, that class springs into existence and you can start using it. You can start creating instances of it and um, open a browser on it and start adding your code um, for what it's supposed so, to do.
1: Would you, would you say that Smalltalk is like, like Lisp is to functions, Smalltalk is to objects? Like th- They're just like, this is our paradigm and we're gonna do everything within this paradigm.
2: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, every every single thing is an object. You you know, numbers are objects. You know, down and the only the,
1: way you can do anything is by sending a message to an object.
2: Like, right, that's the
1: only way to do anything.
2: Yeah, and so like I mentioned earlier, like uh, you know, operations like plus, minus, divide, they look like you know the plus symbol, the minus symbol, all that stuff, but they're actual methods on types that understand them. So the ramifications of this is that the order of operations that most programmers have come to expect doesn't exist. Um, So the order is unary messages, then binary messages, and then keyword messages. And when there's a tie, it basically goes left to right. So if you had a, a, you know, an equation, you said, you know, uh, a times or a minus B plus C times X or whatever it's not going to give you what you expect because it's not it's going not to do the multiple first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's going to do it left to right. Not
1: mathematical uh, precedence, but uh, like you said, it's urinary, binary, whatever precedent. And right. Then and then the right. keywords.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it, that can be surprising if you, you know, have a, you know, some sort of formula you're doing and it's like, why am I getting the wrong value? Oh, it's because it's doing it in a different order.
0: So is every method, polymorphic or do you have to tell, I mean, like in C++, we have virtual functions and you say this is, or this isn't in, in small talk. it's just like, yeah, if you've got a method, it's always going to have a dynamic binding.
2: Yeah. There's, there's no type information. Um, So, you know, you, you tell it your method, you just tell it that it takes a something, but that something really can be anything. You don't say it has to be a something of this type. So, You know, if you try to send a method, if you try to send a message to something that doesn't understand it, then um, there is a method defined in the class object called does not understand that takes the name of the thing you were trying to send it. So what happens in the development environment is if you try to do this method call, um, then eventually, you know, it'll try to find that method in the thing you called it, the receiver that you sent it to, and then it'll start working its way up the inheritance chain looking for it. And if it ultimately never finds it, then it will call this does not understand method that pops up a window, uh, drops you into the debugger and says, you know, you see the full stack trace.
0: This is why I thought it was an interpreted system, because all of the stuff you're describing sounds very runtime dynamic stuff going on.
1: But the way that they could do it is because your IDE is built into your right. into your graph,
0: right? Right. Um, but that, yeah, that leads us to into the. I mean, is that the error sit model is does not understand
2: only for that case? Um, I mean, it has exceptions. Um, you can do. Um, yeah, much of the language is built around blocks. You have a block of code that can, you know, it's anything inside square brackets is a block or a closure um, and they're lexical closures. Um, so you can, you know, create a block and then, um, you know, tell it to do something and you can specify um, different small talks have slightly different versions, but there's usually like an ensure uh, keyword. You can say, uh, you know, if, Basically, if that block fails, um, well, no, I'm sorry. Ensure is like a finally. Uh, It says do this block, and then regardless of if it works or not, do this other block of code inside this ensure clause. Uh, But then there's also um, like an on colon do colon, which says, you know, if I get this exception, then do this block. Um, And there's cool things you can do too. Like if you get an exception, you know, you catch it, and then you can do things like, you can say, I just retry it. Um, you can mutate the state and have it retry it. Um, you can say retry it, but with this block of code that's going to do something else. I mean, you can get, it can get kind of hairy, um, but so it gives your you a
0: lot of own, options. In your own programming experience, it, This we, we've we been looking into error handling, Um you know, more on this podcast. And it's been our title
1: is Happy Path Programming. Happy Path Programming, right. handling a lot. So,
0: and I've been struggling with it for quite a while, just kind of going, yeah, what's, and one of the things that I've come across is that the original ideas that people had were a bit ivory tower, like exceptions in general. um, The idea is that it's something you can recover from. And it turns out that that doesn't happen very often. You know. It's like, yeah. oh, well, if you try and do some IO and it fails, well, yeah, just try it again. But then there's a lot of things that are different kinds of errors and not recoverable through the exception mechanism. But we have this sort of universal exception mechanism, and that's what everybody uses. And so it basically gets misused. So with these, with these kind of clever other things, how often did you find yourself using those?
2: Um I don't know, that has been a long time.
0: It has, yeah.
2: Um yeah, it I mean some of them like there's a resignal that's basically like a rethrow so you could say, you know, if you catch this exception, throw this other one. Um the the retry and the um uh seems like, you know, if you can mutate the environment somehow like if uh to fix maybe it yeah, or maybe you just want to try a couple of times. So you you set a counter uh, for how many times you've tried it, and then you retry it. And then um, you know once you hit that you know whatever your limit is, then you resignal or you just you know quit, return something else.
0: And that's often, I mean, that's usually something that's outside of your control. You're going, oh, some I/O failed. I wonder if I tried it again, maybe it'll work. But if right. it's inside your program. Uh, you probably messed something up in your uh in your programming. And so that's not really an exception state. It's a it's a programmer error and should yeah, be reported and, and you, in a different way.
2: Right. And you hope that the debugger will catch that um mm-hmm. while you're working on it, but you know, if, if it escapes, Ooh. then you get sort of an ugly dump and uh, if you've stripped
1: well, the image, you've, that- you've you've stripped the debugger out of your image, right? Tray, for production, yeah.
0: yeah. So, and you've programmed a lot with Java, right?
2: Yeah, I started with Java in 1995.
0: Okay, so how has knowing Smalltalk influenced your uh, Java programming style?
2: Um. Well. Uh, With the first version of Java's collections, I was constantly pining for Smalltalk's collections because they were way better.
1: Um,
2: Uh. (laughs) Smalltalk was the, um, you know, when I saw the lists that it had and the fact that you could, instead of having to, you know, for I equals zero, you know, the C style of iteration of a collection, um, you could say... Because uh, small talk collections have these methods that should sound familiar when I tell you there's collect, select, detect, reject, and inject into. Um, <laughs> Mats took those names directly into Ruby, and I think all five of those are still there. Um, but yeah, so you could say, you know, collect is just map, right? That's what we know it is today. Um, and so being able to do to transform a collection, by just passing a block to this method called collect. I was like, that's so cool. And then so they so were now, doing
1: like, like function-based transforms on collections long before, like I, I ran into them in Scala. It was the first time I yeah. started doing that.
2: Yeah. And um, yeah. So because
1: you could easily have a closure that you passed right. to those. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You just pass a block in and it, you know, if, if you've just got a, you know, a collection, then you get a, a, a variable bound to each bucket of the collection and the closure can do, you know, whatever it wants. And then the result is, um, uh, whatever, however, it transformed each of those buckets. It's a new collection of those values. Hmm. And hmm. then there's select, which is, you know, filter, um, there's reject, which is a negative filter, right? Um, And then um, detect just returns the first thing that matches your closure and then inject into is a um, uh, uh, reduce.
1: Okay.
0: Nice. Well, So my own experience in talking to small talk programmers when I was like working with C++ and with Java and trying to figure out, you know, what do we do with these objects and how do they fit together and everything was that... People who had had a small talk background seemed to have a much better overview and big picture of how to design with objects than people who, like me, had started in C++ and my first sense of objects was figuring out what a virtual function was doing and then going, <laughs> why are we doing this? Why are we going to all this trouble to have this, this dynamic binding thing? So I, I came at it from like, the assembly language level up, and if, it seems like if you were coming at it from the small talk perspective, I mean, I know Martin Fowler too. When um, when I started messing with uh, Python, he goes, "Oh well, I like Ruby because they have blocks," and yeah. you know that's the direction that he went. Yeah. So how how much of an influence do you think it had on your ability to design with say something like Java?
2: Huh. Um... Well, I mean, I remember when I was learning about virtual functions in C++ um, back in, like, 91 or 2, and it was like, I didn't fully understand. It's like, okay, I understand inheritance and all, and, and if you, you know, what is it? You create a very, I just remember having a hard time understanding um, the, the um, oh, I just lost the word, uh, the functions. Instance. no. Oh, crap. Member
0: functions?
2: Know. No, the uh, virtual functions. Oh, yeah, um, sure. Yeah, I just remember having a hard time understanding that. And, you know, you didn't have to worry about that in small talk. And, you know, all the things with, like, there's no difference between stack and heap. You don't have to worry about allocating space for the thing you're going to create. And you don't have to worry about cleaning up after yourself because it has full garbage collection. and um And so, but your question was, how did that affect my ability to design? Um,
0: Well, because, you know, the people who created the design patterns book, I think a lot of them had strong small talk backgrounds. The Gang of Four? The Gang of Four, yeah. And I think the, um, I think some of the ideas came from small talk. For yeah, and some, a lot
2: of the examples were small talk too. And the if you remember the Gang of yes. Four book, there are a lot of examples in there that were small talk code.
1: Huh. Yes. Yeah. yeah so maybe I, I've been uh, I've had this campaign against the builder pattern lately, and <laughs> and uh, I've been blaming Java a lot for it. But maybe I actually need to blame small talk. Did you ever do builder pattern type stuff? I. And no i trend. don't think so i mean just
2: because um yeah i don't i remember i've used builder pattern i remember reading about it i don't remember seeing it in small talk code but again that was you know a long time ago
0: because <laughs> i think the influence kind of as you're saying is that when you're dealing with a system where you don't think really about efficiency at all because you know things like virtual functions and stack and heap those are all efficiency issues right and 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 look at what it did to the design of java um, even though java is all basically heap based they still have the new keyword that they <laughs> took from c++ which they didn't need
2: right and, and in fact oh sorry
0: and they also didn't want to use, uh, they didn't want to have operator overloading because it was too complicated. But that complication in C++ is primarily because you have that stack heap dichotomy and you have to work around that. Whereas if it's all heap based and garbage collected, you don't have to think about
2: it. Right. And Smalltalk has new also, but it's not a, a keyword. It's actually a method. Uh, it's, a, it's a method that you send to a class to tell it to create a new instance of itself. Um, so it's on the right side of the thing you're creating, not the left. Huh.
0: Mm-hmm. So how much of Java's design do you think was influenced by small talk? Cause I mean, that's one of the things that they said is that they wanted it to be more like small talk.
2: Um, well, if they, if they hadn't done primitive, uh, numbers and you know those those stack based things i think it would have been you know even closer i don't know some of the like the the, the lame collections that we had early on um and maybe lame is unfair but the less no, rich no, collections
0: not yeah. unfair. they were really <laughs> badly designed okay they were, um, they were terrible
2: yeah i mean you know single inheritance which is what small talk has um uh is there, uh, you know, not doing multiple inheritance. I totally understand. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That's kind of a hard question for somebody who wasn't in on the design process.
0: So you maintained, uh, some open source implementation of Smalltalk, Is that right? Yeah. So in
2: 1999 or so, um, I came across this small talk called pocket small talk, um, that had been written some years earlier by a guy called Andrew Brault. Um, and he had, you know, released it into the world and then had moved on to other things, I guess. And, um, there was another guy called Eric Arsenault who was, had been, had done some work on it. Um, he wasn't doing much with it then. And so I got it and started playing with it and, and it was a, it ran on windows, but it generated binaries for Palm devices. So Palm pilot. Um oh. which was the big thing at the time, you know. Um and so the environment itself was written in Dolphin Smalltalk. So I went and got um, you know, Dolphin Smalltalk um and started adding to the environment. Well, the first thing I did was I wrote a a, a full tutorial on how to build Palm apps using Pocket Smalltalk. And then I started adding to the environment. So like I built toolbars in on all of the internal windows. Cause this was a full small talk environment, even though, you know, your code it, it was different in the, the code that you write didn't run on that platform, right? Because our target platform was the palm, which was a arm or whatever that processor was. Um, but you did have an image and it did have all of the developer tools built into it. You know, we had browsers and, uh, workspaces and everything. So, um, But so I went in, I added toolbars and then I kind of took, you know, was the main guy doing work on it for a few years until like, let's see, 2001, um, Eric and I went to, uh, small talk solutions, the conference in Chicago, and we gave an all day talk. And that was a long day, um, on pocket small talk. Um, I think we had like maybe 30 or 40 people in the room with us for, you know, this eight-hour talk. Um, and again, an eight-hour talk is a very, very long time.
0: It's a tutorial.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we walked them through, um, you know, basically the, the full environment, how to use it, um, you know, what you can do with it. Um, uh, you could, there was a Palm emulator you could download. And so you could build these, I think they were swic font, like .swc. I think that was the extension. And you could load it onto your emulator. Um and play with it before you actually put it on your palm device, but I stopped doing that in the early 2000s sometime. Um, just sort of got bored with it, and nobody. What's the
1: relationship between Dolphin, Small Talk, and Squeak?
2: So Squeak is um, Squeak came out in 1996, and it was basically Alan Kay and who was one of the original Small Talk creators. Um, I guess he was at Apple at the time. I know it's kind of a weird history, but um, so this, this group of guys took an original Smalltalk 80 image while they were at Apple and revived it. And then that work continued at Walt Disney Imagineering. Um, and then it became Squeak. And Squeak is this cross platform, basically, it's Smalltalk 80, which was the, the first version of Smalltalk. Um, that runs on multiple platforms. Dolphin Smalltalk was a Windows only, or I say was. It, they still make it. Um, it's um, they're up to version seven now. I was looking at it the other day. Um, it's Windows only, um, and like I said, it generates actual .exe files instead of you know an image that you have to um, that you have to run pass to a program to run it.
0: Hmm. So what took you away from small talk and what's, what do you miss about it?
2: Mostly time. Um, You know, I'm doing, you know, work for companies and I was just doing small talk in my spare time by then. Um, I, I love the environment. Um, Like I said, you know, having all your develop, all your developer tools built in. Um, course that does limit choice you know like now like you couldn't pry IntelliJ and their tools away from me for all of the the day job work but um you know other people like Eclipse and other people like VS Code and um so you you miss out on variety like that you're you're locked into what the environment provides you um there have been some alternate browsers and things like that but basically everybody does their work the exact same way the what else do I miss I, I most of, like Java's catching up now in terms of like what the collections can do um, the yeah I don't know it's just it was I had fun working in small talk, whereas i don't Java is not fun to me, you know I mean it, it pays the bills and i'm'm I'm, I'm good at it, but um, i don't I don't really enjoy it like Kotlin I'm digging on Kotlin and I'm really digging on rust. Um, But it's a different kind of fun than when I was working with small Smalltalk.
0: So what sort of um, concurrency model do they have? I wanted to go there too. Good, thank
1: you. <laughs>
2: um, so there was basically, they had um, a, a method called fork. So you would create a block and you would send it the fork method and it would fork itself off into a thread. Um, and then you could communicate between threads using a shared queue. So you would create an instance of this shared queue. Uh, and there was like a, uh, a priority version of it too. So you could, um, you know, have priority queue. And then you would just sort of like in go when you uh, create a channel and when you have your go routines, you pass, you know, one end of the, of the channel to each of the methods that need to, or either each of the go routines that need to communicate, you would do the same thing. So you would, um, pass so there the,
1: was no, was there no shared, shared memory? Like you couldn't like access different, the same object from different fork threads or something. There wasn't, you,
2: you could do some of that. They, there were semaphores and, uh, and mutexes. So you, you could access, oh. um, uh, you know, things at the same time, but it, it wasn't really, um, like there was no concept of like the Java synchronized keyword. Um, you know, if you, if.
0: So the emphasis was on communicating sequential processes, CSV. Uh,
2: uh well, I mean, they would run concurrently. You could fork off, you know, several threads well, and they,
0: yeah. I mean, that's the idea. So you, each one has its own process. But the, and the only the communication is communication this careful, is cu- cued approach.
2: I don't know if that's... I mean, you the, the mutex is if you're, if the blocks are inside the same object because blocks are lexical, so they can see everything that's come before them. So you could have two blocks in the same method that get spawned off in their own threads, but they can still see all of the variable, all of the instance variables from the object that created them. So that's why you would need like the mutexes. Um, And like the mutex, you actually, when you, uh, when you get, it's like the mutex, you say, here's this block of code, run it when it's a, when I can, Um, Mm -hmm. rather than like the semaphore, which is just, you know, you, you ask it, Hey, can I do something and you wait until it says you can, um but yeah so you could I
1: have, a, I have this uh theory that that object orientedness kind of we we solved the major uh problems with object oriented programming when we started dealing with concurrency. That's when the model started to like break down and functional programming is kind of like giving us a solution to those problems in that realm. Cause I, like that's what I've seen in Java and even in Kotlin yesterday, I was, I was playing with vars to illustrate how bad using vars are. <laughs> uh, and I, I was like, all right, if a is not equal to null, then do this thing. And usually in Kotlin, because all i ever really use is vowels. When you do that, Kotlin's like, oh, I can smart cast this thing to the non-nullable thing in your, in your handler. Uh, but when I tried to do this on a VAR, Kotlin was like, oh, nope. you can't smart this <laughs> because that it might change might have between here and here. Between here and, and you here. don't
0: usually think in
1: those yeah. terms, but you go,
0: oh, you're right. It might.
1: Yeah. And so, so I think like, like concurrency is that when, when we had to start doing concurrency, all of a sudden we realized, oh, this model is not going to work for what we need here. Yeah. Well, and certainly not in its current form. Right. Um, well, so you look at pony, which I think is very inspired by small talk and kind of like true, Oh, of sending messages to communicate, but they have added the like rust style way to control how information is accessed and mutated across message passing, uh, and and do like a queue queue based approach and that sort of thing. So they've they to achieve I think to make OO work in a concurrent environment better, uh, they've had to add some some constructs around that.
0: Yeah. Well, my and my original question was: It sounds like yes, you can use semaphores and and that kind of thing to, to guards, but the general, it sounded like they were pushing you towards using communicating sequential processes. The The CSP model okay. is like, okay, you got a process over here. It's running completely independently. Nobody can see it. You got another process over here. The only connection they have is this queue and, they, and this thing can go, oh, I'll put something on the queue. And then when you want to, you can pull it off, but nobody can like push anything into anybody else. And it's a very, it's it's sort of more what Go pushes
1: oh, Erlang,
0: Akka. Erlang, yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's kind of, I don't know if proven is the right word, but it's kind of shown to be one of the safer or safest models for concurrency.
1: <laughs> one of the only safe ways in object-oriented programming that you can do concurrency without foot gunning yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> foot gunning, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Yeah. And like you, you talk about, um, you know, vowels and VARs, which, you know, Kotlin, they want you to do vowels as much as possible. Right. And, and we want to do that because immutable is, is, you know, the, the safest thing. But in small talk is like, there, there's no concept of that. Everything is, is mutable. Um, you know, I mean, no, if you have a class, then instance variables are, are private you can't see them. You have to provide, um, accessors, but, um, and you know you could make a, an instance variable immutable by not providing a setter, but the object itself is still you know mutable. There's there's no concept like the var versus val uh, difference
1: or final in Java. Yeah,
2: yeah,
0: mm. yeah. It seems like the the model for objects is that the object kind of manages and protects its data but there really wasn't a lot of thinking about whether this should be mutable or immutable. Right, it's, yeah. It, it, whereas with functional programming, they're going, yeah, mutability is really a, an important issue. And we're going to, we, you know, we want this idea of... We're going to make you, you feel shame if you make something mutable. Yes, <laughs> and you do. You do. I mean, I feel like, oh, this is a puzzle I have to solve. How do I make everything immutable because I know it's possible and now I want to do it. And if I, if I end up with a VAR, I feel like I've failed. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and your, yeah. your editor will, you know, color it differently. And yes. uh, I think, I think when I was working in Scala years ago, it was the first time I saw that when like VARs were like red or something. It's like, why is that red? That looks like an error. It like, yeah, it's well, a shame. it's, you know, shame.
0: Yes, it's, the, it's the, the red badge of shame.
1: Right. Huh. Interesting.
0: So, um, well, other than the development environment, do you do you miss anything about the way syntax or
1: programming model? Yeah, or any of that stuff. Um, was it just always full of nice people in the community? Yeah.
2: Well, <laughs> community. Um, it was kind of small even back when I was in it. I mean, like the, you know, when I first got into it, the internet was still fairly new, and so communities weren't really a thing like they are now. Um, You know, it was mostly like forums and message boards and that kind of stuff. Um, And the entry
0: fee was $5,000, so.
2: Yeah. Now, GNU Smalltalk still exists. um, And, you know, Dolphin now has an open source version of their version 7. You can uh, download it from GitHub. So, you can get into it cheap. And VisualWorks, which is owned by Syncom now, they have a a personal license, which I tried to—I used to have a personal license for it years ago, um, but I, I hadn't in years. But to get a personal license now, you have to like fill out this web form, and it says it could take up to 24 hours. And I still—I tried last week to get one, and still haven't heard anything. So, uh, That's ostensibly, yeah, <laughs> yeah, ostensibly you can get it for free, but um, uh, I, I couldn't on that one. But,
0: I had heard that there was some small talk based like web server that uses continuations, something like that.
2: It's probably Seaside, um, which I haven't done anything with, um, but I know it exists. I just haven't looked at it. So my,
1: my homework is going to be, I'm going to try to get a Seaside app running in Docker on Google Cloud Run. That's my homework.
2: Of course you are
1: just to just to see it. I've never done small talk. I got to try it.
2: So the the small talk I've been working with the last few days just after we talked I you know wanted to refresh my memory. So um there is a a descendant of squeak called Faro, pharo.
0: P H A R O. Oh yeah, I've seen that, but they didn't say it was did they did they call it a small talk? I thought they said no, this is a different language.
2: Um I'm sure they did call it that um okay. but it's cuz it is they basically forked squeak um and they've tried to modernize the UI which it's still i mean if you run it on a mac it's still kind of jarring because it doesn't look like anything like a mac you know what your mac windows are supposed to look like but it does look better than squeak which still look like small talk 80 you know mm-hmm. graphics um, but they've tried to modernize it some, but the, the language is still the same. Um, there's Git support now, which is, uh, interesting. Um, uh, but so I would recommend, uh, you know, if you, if you really want to play with it, get Pharo because I'm pretty sure that Pharo and Seaside are somehow related. Um, like it, maybe it's the same people or something. I, I'm not entirely sure on that, but I'm fairly certain, but Pharaoh is a great place to start.
1: Okay. Check it out. Pharaoh Seaside. That's
0: the one you would recommend.
2: Yeah, and it's it's free, so it's a and you know if you get a small talk eighty book, uh you'll probably be able to uh, you know, do the examples. But they have if you go to I think it's org, they've got links to like twenty something books on like small talk in general and using there's one um Pharaoh by example, uh, that's really nice. Uh, you know, walks you through using the all the developer tools and it's a little out of date. Some windows have changed a little bit and you may have to, you know, noodle over things a little bit, but it, it's a generally a good introduction to fairly modern small talk.
0: Hmm. So, um, I'm going to take a cue from one of the Python podcasts I listen to and say, like just for you personally, like what editor do you use and are, do you have any favorite? And this doesn't have to be small talk oriented. It's just like, what, what do you work in on a day-to-day basis and what editor you use? And do you have like some favorite libraries that you think are really well designed?
2: Um, well, I do mostly Java for the day job. Um, and is
0: that, what version of Java is that?
2: Oh Lord, we're on Java 8. Um, oh, okay. You're the rest which, of the world.
0: So, yeah, it's well, okay. You're not alone. it's
2: like I heard the other day something about Java 15. I'm like, oh my God, you know, is it, is it really up to that now? And um,
0: even then, is it, is that one that you pay attention to or do you wait for the long term support one, which is, is that 16 or is that, I, yeah. I don't, I don't even know because they're just putting them out every six months, like most yeah. large companies.
1: Somewhere, <laughs> some, somewhere in the company, somebody is thinking about Java versions, but.
2: Yeah, maybe, but yeah. So we do Java. Um, we've done some Go um, within the company, um, uh, but so let's see. So I work in IntelliJ uh, mostly. Um, I, so, I buy the. I personally buy the whole um, the all tools suite uh, just because it's inexpensive and they're so good. And um, so good. I do Rust mostly in my free time. So I use um, C Lion with the Rust plugin what's C line C lion is their C and C++ um, development environment you okay. could do it you can load the rust plugin into IntelliJ and I used to do that I used to use like IntelliJ for everything but now lately I've started using IntelliJ just for Java and Kotlin and then I'll use the specialized IDEs you know if I'm working in Ruby I use Ruby mine and uh, GoLand for go
1: and yeah I've um, done the same thing as you I was just load, it, load plugins into IntelliJ. I haven't used the specialized versions.
0: Yeah, I changed. I mean, for Python, I use PyCharm. Just... Yeah.
2: It's a little lighter weight. Um, and, you know, there are things that aren't Java specific, you know, in there. It's like, well, there is no class path in Python. I don't, you know, why is there a field here to set the class path? It doesn't matter. Um, one of the things that I love is a font um, which it seems strange to say that you're in love with a font but um, it's this font called fira f-i-r-a code and it's you know a free true type font but the thing that i love the most about it is it has programming ligatures um and so this is like if you're you're typing and you have to enable them and like in all the IntelliJ or the jet range products they have a when you set this font there's a checkbox that says use font ligatures you have to turn it on and so it has special symbols for for different things so like uh if you type you know like bang e- like what
1: the anonymous function like dash greater than or equals greater than or whatever becomes like an arrow
2: yeah exactly yeah so you know if you type bang equals then you get an equal sign with a slash through it like
1: you uh, know, we used to see.
2: and stuff like arrows it converts, you know, like the less than dash into an actual single glyph that is a nicely styled arrow. And, um, but it's still under the covers. It's, it's just a display thing. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the source file in VI, yeah. then you're still going to see the less than minus, unless you have font ligatures uh, set up there too. But it's, yeah. it's just, it's a beautiful font. Um, it's.
1: Uh, but more I, beautiful I, than I... JetBrains Mono, because I love JetBrains Mono.
2: Yeah, I I change it as soon as, I mean, nothing against JetBrains Mono, but I just, I've liked Fira for a few years now. And so it's my font for everything.
1: Nice. Uh, what do you think of Cargo? I've, I've heard such good things about Cargo. Cargo's
2: yeah. nice. Uh, it uses Toml. Um, it uses Toml, which you mentioned on a previous episode. Cargo.
1: Cargo is the package oh. manager for Rust. Oh, right. Okay. You know, okay. Sure. Toml. Toml's so good. Yeah, it's,
2: so, it's cargo is it's not just the package manager. It's the build tool. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you can say Rust-C, you know, and compile this code, but most people pilot. don't. Yeah, you just run cargo build, um, and you can say cargo build minus minus release, and it does a release version, um, which is, like, fully optimized, which I had a, a program I wrote recently, and um, when I ran this, like, benchmark on it, the performance was just terrible and then I recompiled it with the minus minus release and then it was you know Wait. orders of magnitude faster so it's like whatever they turned on uh, was a good thing but right. um but yeah so you have a toml file uh, where you list your um you know some things about the build and then all your dependencies and the versions and it it fetches them for you and um they should have the
1: used i should have used doll instead of toml. but hey toml is better than yaml and json so I and hate YAML. Yeah. What's, what's, <laughs> what's a doll? I haven't heard of that one.
0: Well, that Are we sure we got on... that we're bought into that? Because that seemed like the getting people up the curve on that could be very challenging.
1: Yeah. Uh so in our episode on declarative languages where I launched my um my campaign against declarative custom declarative <laughs> languages, somebody in Twitter was like shouting doll 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 uh at at us in response to that episode so bruce and i went and checked out doll and it's it's really interesting because one of the things that we don't like about declarative or i don't like about declarative languages is you hit the wall there's no escape hatch Mm. and doll has it you still have a wall but i think that that wall is a lot further back than with with and and it's clearly defined
0: by design rather than just running out of steam which a lot of these things seem to it says we're doing this for a reason and i like that but the pure functionality of doll i think unless you're into that that could be a steep learning curve for some people to set up their their build systems yeah it's it's got so there is there are
1: i think two build systems that are using doll for the language now which mm-hmm. is interesting, but I have not done enough exploration on on Dal and and using it for a build tool to to have much opinion on this. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, you you mentioned about the hitting the wall with the declarative language, and I remember when I listened to that episode. Um, I, I listened to your show when I'm running, and uh, you know, of course, I'm like yelling things out, and passersby I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but. <laughs> Um, so
1: it's, it's a crazy person it's yelling about be because the
0: things that you're languages <laughs> would just by. be like it's uh, he's got he's got some
1: weird form of Tourette's syndrome. Yeah. But weird I was thinking computer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I walked down the street yelling, "Effing builders, builders! I God, they should all die." <laughs> you are know, looking at me right here, but.
2: So we were talking about Gradle, um, in that episode and, and like I've been using, you know, I, I used to use ant a long time ago and then I've been using Maven since like 2008. So for me, Maven is like the way to go because I understand yeah. it. I can do what I need to. And I've tried to do, I've tried to get into Gradle. I tried again after listening to your show on, on that, uh, on that. And there's just parts of it that just still feel inscrutable, but I completely agree your your point about when you hit the wall, you know, you hit the wall of what the declarative part can do or what the, the built in stuff can do and just being able to, you know, you're already in the language, just write, you know, Groovy code or Kotlin code or whatever. I, I hadn't really thought about that before because I've just, you know, when I've looked at it, I was like, well, why would you why would you want to do this in, in Groovy? Why not just, you know, just declaring what you want and let the builder figure it out seems like much better. but I hadn't really thought about that case because I I, back years ago in Maven, I had to write, you know, plugins for our Maven build that did stuff that it wasn't supposed to do. And it just wasn't any fun to
1: do, you know, (laughs) it's not any fun. Well, and uh, what I've done a lot in Maven is you can actually through a Maven plugin, pop an ant script into your Maven build file Yeah. it's like, okay, there's my escape hatch, but oh, it feels it's so to terrible. Ant. It feels so terrible. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Yeah, uh, that felt dirty. easier
1: than going to go into a full-blown plug-in, but... Mm. Uh, yeah, it's still... I don't think any of
0: us are happy about any of these things. It's just... It's still a second-class citizen, so yeah. it just it doesn't get the care that it needs, which is why Cargo is is nice because it's like, oh, it does what you want it to do without
1: forcing you to go through a lot of gyrations. The best build tool is the one we don't have to do anything for. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah it really, it's not the problem we're trying to solve. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, that was, that was fun. Yeah. I learned a lot. I learned stuff. <laughs> thanks, Joey, for joining us, and thanks for the feedback. Yeah,
2: thanks for having me. I uh, it was fun,
1: and we'll see you maybe whenever
0: the next Winter Tech Forum is, which might not be till the summer.
2: Fingers crossed.
0: Yeah, fingers yeah. crossed. It's in the summer. Yeah. <laughs>